In the name of God, most merciful, ever merciful, and may God's peace and blessings be upon his holy prophet Muhammad and the purified members of his household and project. Allahumma salli ala Muhammad wa ala Muhammad wa ajil farajahum. Brothers, sisters, and respected viewers, Assalamu alaikum jami'an wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. And welcome once again to uh, our, inshallah, blessed gatherings. Today the, the topic of the discussion was supposed to be uh, a, providing simply a summary, a recap of the series of Islamic beliefs that, inshallah, will serve the purpose, multiple purposes. One of them, just a quick refresher, as we've been off that series for a while. And perhaps for those who are not able to attend the entire series, or not attend any part of the series at all, that they know at least what we covered, the main points that we've covered until now. And knowing also that uh, the recordings of all of these lectures are available online and anyone can go back to them in case you, you want to. Uh, so just providing a kind of a quick high-level overview of what we covered. Uh, and inshallah, this is going to serve as a, the foundation and the basis for building on for the next step. And inshallah, we'll get to that at the very end today uh, by revealing or announcing the, the, the next uh, series, inshallah. So we began the series on Islamic beliefs because although there are a lot of needs and there's a lot of curiosity about all sorts of topics that we may have. A lot of people are interested in all sorts of things that religion has to say. The most important when it comes to religion, the most important theme or topic or subject, call it whatever you want, is that we know what religion actually says. We know what we're supposed to believe. Before we say we believe, we have to know what is it that we're supposed to believe? What is it that religion actually says? And we have to begin with beliefs. Before I begin by looking, let's say, at what religion says about fasting or praying or how I sleep or how I eat or, 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 I need to know what is it that I'm supposed to be believing. Because this is going to answer the most fundamental questions I have as a human being, not as a religious person. As a human being, my worldview is going to change based on my beliefs. And so I have to start with the question of beliefs first and foremost. Once this is out of the way, then we have to decide as a human being, you get to decide, do I accept this worldview or not? And if I accept it, then what does this mean for the manner in which I live my life? So this was the reason why we began our first interactions, our first series, our first topic with beliefs because we're trying to establish our worldview as someone who is a believer. What is it that I'm supposed to believe in as someone who is Muslim? And then the second point that goes to this is why do I believe this? For instance, and we'll get to that, if we say, therefore you believe in God as someone who is Muslim, your worldview includes a belief in a God or in God. Why? And so I have to have the proofs. And so not only did we explain what is it that we believe in, but we also tried to provide at an introductory level 
the main arguments for each item of belief that we presented. And these proofs, we tried to present them in a way that was not, uh, let's call it, it was properly uh, or methodologically systematic, logical. So we relied on logic wherever possible. And where it is not possible to rely on logic, we try to explain why. We explain where the shortcomings of human understanding or human logic are, and therefore, in those cases, what do we do? How do I fill that gap? Where do I find the answer if it's not going to be from logic and from, from human reason? So with those points in mind, we began the entire series, and in, in all of these, I'm not necessarily, you know, uh, uh, quoting the, the titles of the lectures. Some of these, I'm, I'm going to cover them in, in a couple of seconds, but we actually spent a number of lectures on, and some of them I may spend a little bit more time, although they were maybe only a part of the lecture. But the point is that we want to understand how all of this comes together as a worldview. The first introduction to the entire topic, because we are talking about a religious worldview, was religion. And so this was not an in-depth analysis of religion or looking at religion from every angle. It was looking at religion just enough before we embark on a journey of theology and a journey of beliefs. What is religion? Why would anyone want to spend time studying this? What is the importance of this? And we emphasize the points of the universality, of the need. Now, today, there's a lot of connotations when people hear the word religion. So we talked about it from different angles. We said religion, there is a intellectual need for what religion provides. There's a psychological need for what religion provides, and so on and so forth. There's a sociological need, and inshallah, we'll get to those later too. But from the beginning, we said that this need is universal. There is no society, there is no civilization in all of the history of humankind where religion was not front and center and extremely important. Even today, although that's a completely different discussion, religion is simply presented in a very different way. It's not that it's not there. There are religions and there are religious beliefs. It's just that what constitutes religion has changed. The definitions and the packaging have changed. But the need for it and the need for the sacred exists and continues to exist. And everything that goes with religion continues to exist today, including the rituals that go with it, including the, the sacredness, what is holy and what isn't, and what brings people together and not. And inshallah, all of this we will explore much further in the future. So once all of this is understood, we also ask the question about, is it possible to study all of this based only on our instinct and our gut feeling, or do we need to have a little bit more of a, a systematic, formal uh, approach to this? And we said, Given the complexity of the topic, given, 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 we cannot just rely on a gut feeling and instinct to look at religion. We need something a little bit more formal, a little bit more that will just save us time and help us to study religion. That was the first uh, grouping of questions that we tried to answer. With those out of the way, with the need for understanding religion well understood, we then began from the beginning of what it means to have a belief system that is based on Islamic teachings. And so we followed more or less what can be considered a classic version of Islamic theology. So the first discussion that we had before jumping into 
what we refer to as Tawheed, or belief in God, or the topic of existence of God and the attributes of God, we began with the topic of reason, the importance of reason, the relationship between human reason and understanding and faith. And are they compatible? Do they go together? Is it possible to be a believer and someone who is rational? Or once, once you have accepted religion, once you have accepted faith, it means that to the extent that you accept faith, in the spaces, in the areas where you accept faith, you put reason aside. And we said that this is a big misconception. And in fact, it's not a, a completely innocent misconception. It does come from specific types of beliefs that we find in different religions, where you are told specifically that in order to be a believer, in order to be faithful, you have to put reason aside and believe and accept blindly. This is what religion says. To be a believer, it means you accept this, you don't question it. Questioning it means you don't have faith. And we said this is entirely rejected in our religion. Not only does Islam say that reason and faith are compatible, we showed that it says that reason is necessary. Logical thinking and critical thinking in Islam is necessary for your belief. Islam does not want a belief that is entirely blind. Just because you said, I accept and we go along with it. Islam says there's no value to this. It wants people who understand what they believe in and they know why they believe in it. You have proofs, you have arguments, and if you don't have them, go get them, go learn them. So this was the second big theme that we explored, which was reason, the place of reason, and the relationship between reason and faith, reason and belief. And we spent a little bit of time talking about the different kinds of knowledge that a human being can have. So we're not going to go through those, but it was because we needed the different types of knowledge, understanding their shortcomings, understanding where every type of knowledge works and gives us valid conclusions and where it does not. So if I understand that I can rely on my sense perception in certain things, then I can use it that way. And if I understand that my sense perception has limitations, I understand where those limitations are, then I cannot, if someone tells me, therefore I'm not finding the soul that is immaterial through sense perception, I understand that they've committed a fallacy. There's a logical problem in the way they're approaching the issue of, for instance, an immaterial soul. You're never going to find it through anything that is based on sense perception. So we spent a little bit of time understanding this so that once we embark on the topics of theology, it becomes clear which type of proof is required for every type of issue that we're going to encounter. Once this was out of the way, then we got into the topic of God. We began with the topic of God, beginning right away from the existence of God the proofs for the existence of God, and we presented only the, you know, the, the main ones, the big ones, and we spent, I think, enough time to understand, you know, we called them what they are, and we also simplified them, the cosmological argument, the argument from design, and we said that this is for our purposes, for the purposes of the majority of the people, the argument from design is perhaps the most useful one, but we also spent time explaining the cosmological argument because it's very powerful if you understand it. 
And if you guys remember, so that we don't do a pop quiz right now, the cosmological argument is that everything that is contingent, everything that is not necessary, is going to require a cause, require something to start it, to begin it, to bring it into movement or existence. And so if this continues and everything you look at falls in this category, you have infinite regress. And infinite regress means you end up having nothing now. So, and we gave multiple examples for this, so this is just a quick refresher. And this way we prove the existence of God through a mix of the cosmological argument and, and other items with it. That was one. The second argument was the argument from design. And we said when we look at the world and everything in it, we see multiple layers. We said there's one order where you can look at a thing in itself. You can look at an atom. You can look at the eye. You can look at a bird. And each one of these, you can take it in itself. You can look at a, a human cell, for instance, or a human eye on its own, and you look at the complexity and how it works, and you say this has an incredible level of design, which means that this could not have happened randomly. It requires knowledge, it requires power, it requires wisdom, it requires something that has an aim, because it's performing a function. It's performing something specific that could not happen on its own. And then we said you take it to the next level, a higher order, where as complex as that human eye is in itself, it cannot, it is absolutely useless, even if all the conditions came together to produce that eye, that eye is absolutely useless if it doesn't have the proper muscles and the proper, proper nerve system and the proper brain that is connected to it, that is able to interpret the signal coming from it and make sense of it and give it to you. This is where you take it. And then we said, everything you look at in the world, you can look at it on its own, and the majority of the people focus on this aspect of the argument from design, or you elevate it to the next order, and you say, but it's part of something bigger. And that brain has to be part of something bigger. And that human being has to be part of something bigger. And so on and so forth, until you start seeing all the infinite connections that have to be in place, all the conditions that have to be in place for every aspect that you look at in the universe to make sense and to be functional. And this is where you see the strength of the argument from design. In any case, so once this was covered, we went into the attributes of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. We explained the difference between the attributes of essence that allow us to understand Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in himself to the extent that it is possible to understand Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala because we said it's impossible to understand Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. We are limited creatures. By definition, if you are a creature, you're limited. And if you're limited, it is impossible to understand the absolute and the infinite with your limited means and your limited reality. And this is actually the name, the definition of the name, one of the meanings of the word Allah, which one of the, well, the roots of the word comes from Elihet, which means to be confused about, to be uh, amazed about, not know something fully, right? Tahayyar in Arabic. Elihah Tahayyar. That's one of the root uh, meanings of the term. So it's, in other words, in Arabic you already have as part of the name of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the name of God contains a dimension that basically tells you there's an aspect that is out of your reach, out of the reach of your human understanding. But to the extent that it is possible to understand Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, we said that one way to understand Allah, because we can't understand Him right away, as we do with everything else when we look at it in the world, 
we compartmentalize. We look at things, anything we study, anything that human beings study in the world, we look at them from a specific angle so that we can look at it in depth. So when we come to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, we do the same thing. So we look, sometimes we look at Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, we study Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in Himself, and sometimes we study Him through His actions. And so we said, this gives us two categories of attributes of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The attributes we call attributes of essence, sifat dhatiyah, and attributes of action, sifat fa'liyah. And we went through a number of them. We did not cover all of them, but all of the important ones. What does it mean to say Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is khalaq? What does it mean to say Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is ilah? What does it mean to say Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is rabb? What does it mean? What does it mean? So we went through wisdom, power, and so on and so forth. These are the big attributes of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, both on essence and action. From there, we said, given what we have presented until that point, because we took kind of a little bit of a break at this point, we said everything that we've said about what religion is, about the how human understanding works, how the proofs that we have are very solid when it comes to the existence of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and what kind of God he is, the attributes of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. We said when we put this together, it's a little bit difficult to understand why someone would not accept this. Why is it that at the end there are still people who reject this level of truth? And so we spend a little bit of time saying today the biggest rejection that we find beyond people, sometimes they are stubborn, sometimes there are people who have some sort of psychological blockage, there are people who, uh, for all sorts of social pressures, there are people who understand that if they go down this path, it may mean that they have to change their lifestyle and they are not willing to do that. So right away they close the door from the beginning and they say they're not interested and so on and so forth. And we said that once we understand all of this, the biggest problem or the biggest source of rejection or at least the most vocal one in today's world comes to us from all sorts of you know, different versions, newer versions of materialism. And so we spent a little bit of time understanding what is materialism and what are the biggest claims and the biggest objections of materialism in today's world. And so we looked beyond the, the general overview that we provided because of the questions we were getting, because of the interests that we had. We identified three topics that we said we're going to spend specifically more time on. One of them was the beginning of the universe. The second one was the beginning of life. And the third one was the beginning of human beings. And we went through all sorts of books and literature. If you remember the, the book from Lawrence Krauss, A Universe from Nothing, we went through that. We explained what a, a biogenesis is and is it possible for life to emerge out of non-life or not? And what are the biggest theories about it? And what are the statistical calculations around it? And then we explained a little bit of the difference when we went to human beings. We talked about the difference that we find in human beings versus any other type of creature that we find on Earth, for instance, to really conclude that is there a difference between human beings or not? Are we just part of the continuity in a chain where everything can easily be dismissed and understood by, for instance, a theory of, of evolution? Or do we need more and is there a gap? Is there a jump? Right? And so this allowed us to also talk a little bit about the theory of evolution. And the conclusion is that we don't have an issue with the theory itself. 
but the premises of the theory are very problematic. And until someone can show that they work at a scientific level, we have a huge issue with that theory. So the logical thing to say is it is not scientific. You need to put it in the basket of ideology and worldviews or axioms, as they call them. You just take it for granted and you, you accept it on that premise because today it is not proven enough. The claims or what is proven falls much shorter than the final claim or what the conclusion is. Okay, so the things that are, are, are proven are very small. The examples that we have are very small compared to the gigantic conclusions that they reach from that theory. In any case, so once all of this was covered, we went back to the oneness, specifically the oneness of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, that there cannot be more than one God. And then we went into divine justice. And we spent a good deal of time on uh, the different topics related to free will, qada and qadar, divine decree and predestination, and then uh, a lot of time on the issue of how do we reconcile between divine justice, divine wisdom, divine power on one side, and the issue or the problem of evil in the world. And one of the reasons we spent so much time on it, one of the reasons is that uh, it is a complex topic and it requires a little bit of time to be understood in depth. The other reason, as we said, is that it is perhaps the single most problematic area in belief that leads even people who outwardly and clearly say we believe in God or we believed in God and because we did not have an answer to these questions, we left the belief of God. We became atheists or we became agnostics because we could not resolve the issues related to the problem of evil in the world, suffering in the world, troubles and tribulations and so on and so forth. And so we spent a lot of time discussing this, perhaps around 10 lectures. We spent on the issue of evil in the world, hardships and harms. We, we distinguished between all the different categories. We explained why it works in a certain way and what are the repercussions in this life and what are the repercussions in the afterlife related to this entire topic. Once this was all understood, then we moved to the second biggest theme under which we explored beliefs, and this was general prophethood. And this is where we started looking at the need for religion in humanity. What does it mean when we say prophethood? What do we find here when we talk about Nubuwa? What are we talking about? So the first component of this is religion and the need for religion. And we defined what, what is religion? Religion is revelation. It's an additional source of knowledge for human beings to which they would not have access to on their own. So it comes to them from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And this is where we again went back to the topic of the types of knowledge that we have access to and what each one of these types of knowledge provides. Where are they valid and what do they help us deal with? Right? And then that was one topic. The second topic is when we come to the prophets, why did Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala send this revelation through these people that we refer to as prophets? The difference between prophets and messengers and all of that. But why does it have to go through human beings? Human beings like us. Why did Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala not reveal things directly to us? Why did it have to go through specific people? And why do they have to be those specific people and not just some random person? What are their characteristics? What distinguishes someone who is a prophet or a messenger from someone else? Okay, and so we talked about that. We talked, for instance, about 
you know, the, the importance of knowledge, the importance of patience and their ability to withstand hardships and so on and so forth. These become the distinguishing features of prophets. And then we talked about infallibility and we answered the objections that someone may have and the need, the necessity for infallibility in the revelation, which includes the infallibility of the prophets. That if they are not infallible, then this entire means of reaching the truth becomes suspect, becomes open to doubts and questions because there were mistakes made here intentionally or not, then this puts in jeopardy the entire mission, the entire project of revealing the truth to human beings. Okay, and why is religion limited to certain types, if it is limited to certain types of uh, data or information or truths, but not every other aspect of life, why? And so we spent time explaining that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given us the means to reach the truth on our own in all sorts of areas in life. But then there are some areas that are entirely outside of our ability to reach the truth. For instance, when it comes to the afterlife. So unless Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reveals that truth to us, we have no way of knowing anything about it. We may know some very high level, you know, nebulous overview that it's probably like this, probably like that, but we can't reach any details related to it. And this is one of the main reasons that we have to have access to those truths. And then they have to come to us through human beings like us so that we see how these truths are actually applied concretely in daily life by people like us who have desires and who are supposed to be having weaknesses and who have human instincts and you know the animal instincts that we talk about they have hunger and they have thirst and they have fear and they have you know the all, all of these traits that we find in human beings we have to see them in those people so that we understand the extent to which is all of this actually practical and applicable to our daily lives or is this something that would only work if you know, you had an angel walking on earth and then they were given the, these instructions to apply. Well, yeah, of course, because they don't have these desires that I have, of course it's easy for them to apply all of this, right? And then finally, the last topic related to prophethood, the general prophethood, was the topic of miracles. What are they? Why are they different from one to another? One prophet to another? How does Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala choose when to send and when not to send miracles? And then we talked a little bit also about the relationship between prophets and their people, which opens the discussion around the divine punishment that we find in the Holy Quran when it comes to certain people, when does it happen, how does it happen, and so on and so forth. Once that topic was, I think, well understood, we move to the next one, which is what we refer to as special prophethood, specific prophethood. This is where you're supposed to look specifically at one prophet, once you understood general prophethood and you understand what applies to all of them, then you see what is distinctive about this specific prophet. And we said we don't have time. Here this is an introductory course that we're not going to cover any of the prophets for now, except our own Holy Prophet Muhammad And so we spent a little bit of time understanding the distinctions of his prophethood. How he was truly a prophet. So what allows us to argue that he was truly a prophet? And we talked about four different proofs or four different ways of establishing prophethood, and they all apply in his case. Any one of them would be sufficient for any prophet. We said that all four of them apply in his case. I'm not mentioning them, inshallah, you guys are forced to go back and go through these and, and uh, refresh your minds. 
And then we talked specifically about his own miracle, which was the Holy Quran. We said he has many miracles, but the one that is most relevant to us, and if he had none others, it would not matter so long as he has this one, is the Holy Quran. So in what way is the Holy Quran miraculous? And why is the Holy Quran revealed in Arabic? And why was this religion that is supposed to be, because we said the distinctive features of the prophethood of Prophet Muhammad the two biggest distinctive features is that it's supposed to be eternal and universal. Once it was, it had reached its full maturity, once Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala had revealed all of the teachings to the Holy Prophet, that message became universal and eternal. So the Holy Quran also becomes universal and eternal. So the question is, why then is it revealed only to the Arabs? And why is it revealed in Arabic? And we had specific lectures about these topics. Inshallah, you can go back and uh, refresh your minds if they are not all clear. So uh, beyond all of this, I think the last maybe uh, big topic related to the Holy Quran was about the compilation or the authenticity. Because we want to make sure that this revelation or this message that we're talking about even someone who may agree that there was a man who was sent by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala called Muhammad at a specific time with all the divine teachings and if you want the truth you follow him all of that is good but there are people who say the problem is the Quran that we have today may not be the one that he was he had communicated and left to humanity so we have to establish the authenticity of the Holy Quran that it is actually the Holy Quran that the Holy Prophet left for people to use and so this opens the door to a topic that inshallah perhaps one day we can talk about more much more in depth in the Quranic sciences about the details but we I think give enough details in a couple of lectures on the compilation of the Holy Quran and the authenticity of that compilation that what we have today is the same book as the one that the Holy Prophet communicated to human beings and that the order was not just randomly decided by people, that the Imams after the Holy Prophet were the ones who also ensured that it is valid and that this is the Holy Quran that humanity can rely on. And then this opened the discussion to the next theme, which was Imam. What is Imam? Why is it necessary? Why do we have this specific notion? Why did some people accept it and other people reject it? What does it really mean theologically, right? So we went through all of these, what were the main arguments? And then we talked about Imama being a divine appointment and that you need a divine proof for it, no different than you would need for prophethood. It's not a matter that you just reach with your own conclusion, with your reason, you look around and you say, so-and-so is going to be my prophet or so-and-so is going to be my Imam. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala makes that very clear. And then we went to the roles and functions that are supposed to be performed by the Imams, and we said they are the same as the roles that you find in prophets and messengers. Which means that if you were to look at an Imam, if you were to look at the notion of Imam, you should be able to find the same characteristics that you would find, you would expect to find in prophets and messengers. And we said when we went through the verses of the Quran, when it talks about the Imams, it talks about those same attributes. Knowledge and patience, the same attributes given to as conditions for people to become prophets and messengers, right? So we went through all of these discussions, and then the last one related to the 
Imamah, we began with the Imam Imam Ali alayhi salam. We explained that we have, once the Imamah is established, once the approach to Imamah is established and accepted, then we see where did Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala say, this is your Imam and how many are they and how do you establish them? Now, if an Imam comes later and says, so and so is an Imam and so and so is not, what he is saying is as valid as when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says it in the Holy Quran or when the Holy Prophet says, you have to do this or not do that or follow so or don't follow so, right? And so we establish that way, the combination of these arguments, we establish the Imam of all 12 Imams, including the Imam of our time, Imam al-Mahdi ta'ala and we spent a few lectures on his Imam. And one of them had to do with just establishing the proofs for his existence, the reason why he is in occultation. And we, you know, by, by demand, by popular demand, we also had a lecture on what it means to wait for Imam al-Mahdi And it was uh, in depth in a practical way that inshallah was useful. And if you did not hear it, please go back. I think the, 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 uh, these lectures are very aimed at answering specific questions that we get. So usually inshallah, they, they deliver that message. With all of that said, we finally went into the last part or the last component of the uh, Islamic beliefs uh, series. And this one had to do with uh, belief in the afterlife. Now that we established that there is a God, we established what kind of God it is. We established that he must be a God who reveals truths and guides his creatures in the ways that he sees fit. And for us human beings, this guidance happens through revelation and through religion. And so specifically it happens through prophethood of an imamah. Then we need to answer the question, why all this? What happens next? And when we began the series and we talked about worldview, we said there are three big questions. Where do I come from? What am I doing here? And where am I going? Where do I come from is the entire topic of the origin or God. What am I doing here is the entire topic of prophethood and religion and revelation. How do I live my life? And the last topic, where am I going? What is the ex purpose of my existence and where is it headed towards? What is it headed towards? And so this is the topic of the afterlife. And beyond that, we spend a little bit of time beyond the issue of completing our worldview through understanding the afterlife. We also explained the ramifications on daily life for someone to believe or not to believe that something happens after death. And we also said what happens to your belief system, even as a believer, if there are gaps in your belief about the afterlife and what it means. With that out of the way, with understanding the importance of this specific part of our belief system, where we said perhaps there is no other topic that has been emphasized after the belief in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the tawheed of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and the Qur'an as the topic of the afterlife. In fact, there are perhaps even more verses related to the afterlife than there are about anything else in the Holy Qur'an. And we talked at length, why is that the case? Why does the Holy Qur'an and why do the prophets in general emphasize so much about the afterlife? We said because it goes against your natural way of living your life as a human being because you're so connected to the material reality of this world. You don't think or you're distracted or you don't accept so readily a non-material reality that is presented to you, such as something happening after you die, but you don't have any way of knowing what it is. So you just have to take my word for it. Okay? 
And so we explained the, uh, the, the importance of the topic. And then before jumping into the maybe classic way of presenting the topic, we said there is one subtopic in here that we're going to spend time understanding a little bit more carefully and more closely because we're going to need it for every other question and every other theme and, and issue that we address in the afterlife, and that is the soul. What is the human soul? What is the distinctive feature? How do we establish that it exists? What type of entity is it? And then we spent more time here talking about the materialist worldview and what it says about the soul and what the conclusions of those claims are and how they do not believe, for instance, that a human being has any free will. And some of them basically saying that you're just being fooled by your brain and there is nothing but the brain. And the human being is simply what is contained in the cranium and there is nothing beyond that, right? And so we talked about that, we read the texts from the top materialists in the world and the conclusions that they reach. And honestly, they are, as we said, and as we saw, disastrous conclusions because it basically shows that there is nothing like morality or good and bad. And the, the feeling that you have, that you exist and that you think and that you're making decisions, any types of decisions, is all an illusion, right? It's all matter happening, uh, chemical reactions happening, and you're simply, uh, your brain and matter plays a trick on you to keep you going, plays a trick on you to make you think that you actually have a free will and that you have you have your own mind, which is different from the brain. You have your own mind making up decisions and thinking and feeling and deciding and so on and so forth. And so once all of this was understood, we went back after we established the reality of the soul, we established the nature of the soul, we established that it must exist and that it is what we truly are and not this body and that this body is a vessel, this body is uh, an instrument that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given us to go through this life and once this life ends, the role of this body ends but we continue to exist and we are a lot more than what this body is and once this is understood, then we began to go through the more classic topics within the afterlife so we established the necessity, not only the possibility of the afterlife but the necessity of the afterlife and so we provided rational arguments and we relied on the divine attributes of wisdom and justice specifically and then beyond that we went through the holy quran to see how it talks about establishing the afterlife and how it basically takes people from the simple the simplest thinking by disarming those who want to deny the afterlife by basically proving to them that they have no proof that they have no argument and then saying basically the most that you could say is that it is unlikely and so it's unconvincing and so the Holy Quran shows that in fact it is very likely because it's, ha because it's happening all around us all the time and from there the Holy Quran moves to going on the offensive, on the attack by establishing its own proofs for the necessity, not the possibility, the necessity of the afterlife by saying that it is a divine promise by saying that philosophically, logically, this world does not make any sense if there is no world happening after it, if there is no divine justice and no divine wisdom behind the act of creation. Okay, so this was 
the proof that the Holy Quran establishes to bring people to see the reality of this world and the next world. So beyond all of this, then we said, we have to now, because we're starting to rely so much on the Holy Quran, we spent a little bit of time re-establishing or reconnecting with that topic of the different types of knowledge that human beings have and why we're relying so much on the Holy Quran here and beyond this point. And again, a reminder of the limitations of human knowledge that we cannot know the details of the afterlife. We have no way of accessing that. So our only true way of accessing that, which brings us to one of the main purposes of Revelation, is to understand that there is an afterlife and what does it look like. Right? So it was a kind of once again a comeback. You see, every time we the topics start interconnecting and you build on that. So this is a topic of the basically shortcomings of human understanding if you remove revelation or you remove religion from your worldview. And then you have no access of knowing ultimately, for instance, anything after a human being dies. Once this is understood, we uh, basically took a little journey, let's call it, uh, on from the moment of dying. And we said that just those moments of dying, they stop, a human being stops going through the normal timeline of this world and the scale of this world. You start becoming part of the spiritual world, which has its own scale and its own timeline. And so something that may seem that it's lasting seconds here, maybe lasting days or weeks or months in the perception of that world, and the opposite as well. Things that seem could seem to be lasting a very long time here, maybe passing by and very, very quickly in the spiritual world. And in any case, so we went through the moments that a human being dies and how different it can be, how, how wide that spectrum is. Depending on how you lived your life, you are going to exit this world. And depending on how you exit this world, you have a pretty good indication of what awaits you once you are in the next world what we refer to as Alam al-Barzakh. So we spoke about the moments leading up to death. We spoke about death and we spoke about right after death, Those that short time right after death. Each one of these, as we said, is a big station that needs to be understood on its own. And then there is uh, this uh, moment where you are being assessed by the angels or by the creatures who are basically receiving you in that other world to determine what happens to you from now on, and then you enter into this intermediary world of Alam al-Barzakh. And we said this is a very expansive world, a very big and wide world with its own uh, existence. You're basically part of a new realm, and everything that happens in that world depends very much on however you lived your life in this world. So you want to live an easy, simple, uh, you know, happy life, a happy existence in that world, then it depends on what you put in place here. It is entirely dependent on it. And we explain a whole bunch of, uh, you know, questions that people may have, things that may be confusing, misconceptions about Alam al-Barzakh, does it exist or not, and why, and so on and so forth. And then finally, we said all of this comes to a halt. Alam al-Barzakh is still part of the reality of this world and everything that happens around it. And we said Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says he will put an end to all of this at some point and then recreate everything for the afterlife. 
in the true sense. So we said in the practical sense, for our purposes, our life ends the moment we reach death, because we can no longer contribute, we can no longer invest in anything that happens after that point. But the truth is, the afterlife, if we refer to it as Alam al-Barzakh, that's not truly the afterlife. It's still part of a realm, of a dimension of a reality that is connected to this world. It's another face of this world that simply we don't have access to. Or if we do, it's very limited. Alam al-Akhirah, what happens after Yom al-Qiyamah and onwards, that's a completely different universe and a completely different type of existence. And so we went through some of the big stations that happened from that point on. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala raises all the creatures back. They go through a type of judgment that is individual, another type of judgment that is collective. And we said the collective could be at the level of a community, at the level of a society, at the level of humanity, at the level of people who live in your time, right? These these are different uh, collectives of human beings that is constantly reminding us that our responsibility goes beyond our self, our individual person, that we are part of something bigger than us. We belong to different communities and there are responsibilities towards all of them that we have to constantly keep in mind. And then we said at the end, once all of that judgment takes place, then the ultimate and eternal abode is for human beings to end up in heaven or in hell, and what it means to go to one or to the other, what does that look like? We spoke about the language of the Holy Quran and how it presents these truths, so keep all of that in mind. And then we went through a number of topics to basically allow us to better understand the reality and the relationship between this world and the next. So one of these topics had to do, first of all, with understanding the nature of this world and the nature of the next world, which allows us to prioritize if ever we are forced to prioritize. What is the reality of this world? And what is the reality of the afterlife? And if I have to choose one, if I'm ever in a situation where I'm making myself choose between do I give priority to something related to this world or to the next, if I remember those points, then the, the choice becomes very easy to make. That's one topic. The next topic was about remembering the, you know, if someone has merits or difficulties, so having merits or not having merits in this world, favors and blessings and bounties and comforts and luxuries and happiness in this world, does it automatically mean that you also have those in the afterlife or not? And what does this tell us about the nature of this world and the nature of the next? The, the other topic that we talked about was the nature of reward and punishment. When we talk about reward, what are we talking about? Is it, what's the relationship between the act that I perform and the reward that I get? Is it random, as we said? Is it contractual and by convention? Or is it more than that? And what does this tell us about the quality and the sincerity that I have to put in so that I now know that whatever I am putting in terms of actions, whatever I'm investing in terms of effort and energy, that's all I'm getting back. I'm not getting back something different. That is what I am getting back. And if that is the case, then, of course, I need to pay more attention to the quality of what I am preparing for myself in the afterlife. We talked about what we refer to as the ingredients of eternal happiness. What are the main ingredients? 
So we started talking about the importance of having the right beliefs. And we came back to it later by emphasizing the role of intentions. That it's not important to do, it's not sufficient. It's not enough to think that because I do something that looks to everyone, maybe even to myself, that it's a good thing, that that does not necessarily translate into eternal happiness. There is more than just looking at the act itself, even though it may look like it's good or goodness that I'm producing, there is something even more important than that, which is the intention behind the act that I am outputting, that I am producing. Especially if you give, you keep in mind the nature of this world and the nature of the next and why we were created. The purpose of your creation is that you exercise your free will and you purify yourself, you complete yourself in the time you have in this world. And this happens through internally. It's all an internal act that you manifest with your actions, but it starts within. And so if an act externally looks good, but there's nothing that aligns with it internally, it has no value. It doesn't translate into anything in the afterlife. And if you're, another way of putting it is, if your act was with the intention that you receive a reward from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, great. But if all you wanted from the act was to make money or to get a better reputation, for instance, in this world, then that's perhaps what you actually were able to achieve in this world. Good for you. That's mm -hmm. all you get. That was the intention behind your act and that's what you get for it in this world. Okay? And then we spoke about um, the relationship between beliefs and actions. And we said that the relationship is not one way. We emphasize so much on the notion of beliefs and intentions that someone may get the impression that actions do not have any role to play. So what is this importance of you know fasting and praying and doing as much of these rituals and acts of worship as possible if all that matters is what's happening internally, right? And so we said there's a reciprocal relationship. One feeds into the other and we came up with and explained what we refer to as a virtuous spiral or circle and a vicious circle. So that the more you know and the more belief you have and the better intentions you have, this should mean or should translate into the better actions that align with those. That will also mean that you get more faith and more belief and better intentions and so on and so forth. And if you fail to do that, then you're most likely going the other way around. And so if you don't have the actions that would go with the beliefs, then you're constantly sliding down, you're constantly decreasing in level of faith and in level of sincerity towards Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And then the last three topics that we talked about, the first one had to do with the, the topic of nullification. So once you have done good or done bad, is it possible to lose it all? So in the good sense of you have done a lot of good, is it possible, in the bad sense, sorry, of having done a lot of good, is it possible to lose it all, let's say, because you've committed a sin? What if it's a greater sin? Does it mean that everything that you have done just disappears overnight and you're starting over or not? And we refer to this as habt or ihbat. What does it mean? The Holy Quran uses that word. What does it mean and how did our scholars explain? You know, it's kind of a nuanced or, or complex topic. What does it mean? And on the other side, takfir. So when you have done bad, is it possible that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala absolves you? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala nullifies the bad effects of what you have done 
so that you are not stuck with that sin? Is there a way for you to get rid of those, the effects of the sin that you have committed? And we said, of course, that is possible. And we went through the details of that. The second topic, the second last topic that uh, we talked about was, can we consider after all of this that we have said, do we say Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to kind of make it easier to understand, do we say Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is neutral in the sense that he has created human beings in a way where they have the same access to being good and being bad, he's given them all the tools and now it's up to them to choose. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala stands neutrally and in the middle between the good and the bad that a human being does or is the human being pushed a lot more maybe in one direction as opposed to the other. And one of the reasons we ask this is because there is a misconception or there are some arguments or claims out there that there is a lot more reason to be bad than to be good. And so after everything we've talked about, and we said, you know, there are people who even came to the imams and told them so and so says, it's a wonder that anyone ends up being good when everything is pushing the human being to be bad, with everything happening, making the human being want to be bad. And the imam answered, it is a wonder that anyone ends up being bad with all of the bounties and the blessings and the guidance that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has put in to make them good. So this may look like it's simply a difference in perspective, but actually it's not. And so if you keep in mind the nature of this world, everything that we've talked about, you keep in mind the reward and how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala multiplies it. If you keep in mind how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that for every sin, you only get one sin and for every reward you get multiples of that reward depending on what it is and your sincerity and so on and so forth. The, the distinctions that you get, the merits that you get as a believer and so on and so forth. All of this pushes a human being to be better, not to be worse. You have all the reasons of being better and not choosing the wrong. So the claim or the argument that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has created the world and he is entirely neutral does not hold. Or that the human being has more reason to be bad than good does not hold. So all the arguments and everything that when you put it together that we explained brings us to the conclusion that it's much easier and much better and much clearer and more logical for a human being to be good than to be bad. Okay, and then the final discussion related somewhat to this topic was understanding the notion of shafa'ah or intercession. How does it fit into everything that we said? How does it work? What does it mean? So that was the, the last uh, topic or the last issue that we talked about to conclude and complete the entire series on the topic of the afterlife. Does this mean that this was exhaustive and we covered every point? No, there's a lot more that we could cover. But generally speaking, in terms of an introductory course into uh, Islamic beliefs, inshallah, this was comprehensive enough. We did not leave any of the big ideas or themes or questions uh, unattended. And we also tried to cover in much more depth those areas and those questions that uh, either there was a lot more interest in them or there are more, a lot more questions or we know you know, that there are a lot more objections and issues and confusion and misconceptions around them. So we spent a little bit more time on those. So with this in mind, and inshallah, this is enough to uh, position us properly for the next series. Given the um, 
discussions that we had on what is the next topic that we want to address. And there were a lot, I think, of very interesting and very good uh, suggestions of things that are very worthwhile to spend time on. For instance, spending time getting to know the Holy Quran a lot more, spending time understanding Islamic history or the history of the Holy Prophet or the stories of the Prophet or the history of Ahl al-Bayt, for instance. There was interest in spending time on what we can refer to as spiritual development or spirituality, for instance. And all of these are, are important and, and very valid topics, but there's a theme that kept coming back again and again. And that theme is how are we supposed to live our lives based on the teachings of Islam now that we know that now that we have this worldview, how does this translate into living Islamically? How does that translate into applying Islam in our daily lives? We understand Islam theoretically. What does it mean when we look at how the world is functioning? When we see the corruption, when we see the injustice, when we see the difficulties, when we see the things where it's not clear even what is right and what is wrong. And sometimes it is clear, but we're not sure what we're supposed to do. How am I supposed to work? How am I, where am I supposed to put my energy? How much energy do I put into my studies and my work and you know, taking care of my body and myself or versus focusing on spirituality and religion, for instance? How do I focus on myself and how much time should that take and how much energy should that take versus helping out my community? versus living in this society, versus being a, a citizen of the world, looking at all the injustice or all the big issues and dilemmas and, and, and problems that people are facing all around the world. So given this, I think the aim now of the next series is inshallah going to be to present the principles, the Islamic principles of living. So we can call it a series on the principles of Islamic life or principles of Islamic living. And this is going to cover a very broad uh, number of questions and issues. All of them, when they come together, they allow someone to at least know, not in every case we're going to be able to say, this is the ultimate truth, but at least you're going to think about it with a worldview and with the principles that come to you from Islam. And you're going to be able to say, Islam gave me these general principles. Let's see how they apply to this situation. What does Islam tell me about how I'm supposed to think? How, what does Islam tell me about how I'm supposed to live in my neighborhood? What am I supposed to contribute to my community, Islamic and otherwise? What am I supposed to contribute to my society? How, am I, how aware am I supposed to be in the time of history in which I live? How active should I be when I see that there are all sorts of issues, some of them touching me directly, some of them touching me indirectly, some of them perhaps not touching me at all, but I know that there are issues. How involved should I be in all of these? We may not be able to have the absolute truth, but we will have the principles that allow us to reflect on these Islamically. And when this is done Islamically, then that's the best that you can do in the world that you live in. And this is a complex world, and it's getting more complex by the day. And the need for knowing these types of principles is extremely urgent. So, inshallah, 
once we go through these, and the format is inshallah going to be one where we quickly go through uh, a lecture, 40, 45 minutes, and then we spend more time on the discussion part where we try to focus a little bit more, as we said, on how does this translate into day-to-day -day life? What does this mean? How is this supposed to be applied? Uh, and this is where, inshallah, your contributions are going to be a lot more important. Uh, and this is what uh, what we have for today. Beyond that, I thought we could also, but uh, it depends on who is present and who is not. Um, we never really had any chance to discuss anything that was presented in the lectures of the month of Ramadan. So if anyone has any interest in those, either use the group, we can do it now, we can do it later. Uh, we talked about, you know, fasting as being something more than just going hungry and thirsty. We talked about the life of Sayyidah Khadija and the practical uh, lessons that we can take and apply to our lives and maybe some distortions related to her biography. We talked about a little bit uh, about Imam al-Hassan and his life, <clears throat> but we focused on I think it was a map, we said we called it a map of studying Imam al-Hassan so that if anyone is interested in, in further studying the life of Imam al-Hassan uh, and we identified four areas, we said Imam al-Hassan his life gives us a, an opportunity to see the Holy Prophet Imam Ali, Imam Fatima al-Zahra interact with him and so this gives us a lot of the Islamic principles of family ties and upbringing that everybody is always wondering about, you see those applied in the life of Imam al-Hassan and then beyond that we said his life is also perhaps the one that had the most distortions in history and so understanding what those distortions were why they were uh, basically focused on Imam al-Hassan they came from the Amawiyin, from the Abbasiyin and recently even from the Orientalists those who uh, non-Muslims who study Islam and all sorts of distortions that they introduced on top uh, of the old distortions about Imam al-Hassan alayhi and, uh, and then finally studying him in a more spiritual way, studying him as what is his divine rank, what does Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, what has he given him in this world and the next and how does that fit into our worldview. Uh, and then uh, the last topic was, and inshallah, uh, the, once we embark on the next series, you will see that the last topic in Shah Ramadan is actually a, a really good segue and a really good introduction to that topic uh, and it was uh, a quick overview of the will, the last will of Imam Ali salam. what does he say about the manner in which a human being is supposed to live, how you're supposed to look at your position and your role and your function in a community, in a society, what are the priorities of religion, so so that you, you look, you see very clearly that it's he balances between social duties and spiritual duties, for instance. And you see the justice, the social justice being front and center in everything he says and everything he leaves for everyone who wants to follow in his footsteps. He's becomes, these become his, his legacy and his teachings for humanity. If you want to follow in the footsteps of Imam Ali salam, these are the main principles. This becomes your constitution or your program of work for all future. So, inshallah, once we get into the topic, the series, that uh, we may refer to some of those as starting points, uh, but those definitely become, or that entire will, 
becomes kind of an entry point. Looking at it gives us a very, very condensed but good idea of what it means to live Islamically in this world. So if, if you want to get kind of a taste of the entire series in condensed, you get that lecture from, from uh, the last will from Mama Yari. So that's uh, all we have for today. <laughs>